Good morning and welcome to Harvest Bible Church. My name is Lance Waldy. Good to have you. Our study of Luke continues today in the Passion Week of the Christ, his last week uh, before, uh, well, we call it the Passion Week because his last week began on Monday. He comes into Jerusalem. And uh, we are at, when you get to Luke 22, you're at Thursday. We're on Thursday of that week, and it's preparing a prep for the Passover. We didn't finish the last couple of passages in chapter 21, so take a look at verse 37. Uh, we know that Jesus is coming to the temple, and uh, he's taken a look around at the temple on Monday, went back to Bethany. He's staying just about two miles away with his friends, Mary. Martha and Lazarus in Bethany, just right outside of Jerusalem, and he'll go there every night, and he'll come back early in the morning. On Monday, he just came into town, he looked at the temple, and he went back to Bethany. It was a long day, but that's what he did. He just kind of took stock of it. By the time he got there on Tuesday, he goes in and he cleans the place out. They were making God's temple, they, meaning the, the Jews, the, the racket that uh, the former high priest named Annas had created in the Jewish temple was to make money and merchandising, and Jesus turned over all the tables, uh, chased everyone out, and said, my father's house is to be a house of prayer. You made it into a robber's den. And once he cleans them out, now it's good to, to teach. And so he teaches there on Tuesday. When he comes back Wednesday to do the same thing, the, the chief priests that got run out the previous day are saying, well, what gives you the right? Who gives you the authority to, to do this? Jesus asked them, I'll answer your question, but you answer mine first. John the Baptist, was his baptism from heaven or from men? And they start getting together and start doing their little, they're mumbling together. And they don't know, they, they get in a little huddle, this little holy huddle they're in. And they say, well, if we say it was from men, we know that the people here love John the Baptist. They're going to be mad at us. But if we say it's from God, then we have to say that Jesus, you're the, you're the Christ. And we can't have that. So they go to Jesus and say, we don't know. So Jesus says, well, if you don't know, if you can't tell me, then I'm not going to tell you by what authority I do these things. So he continues to teach on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Thursday, or Wednesday, we should say, was a long day. Thursday, there's the preparation for the Passover, because this is the Passover week. That means Jews from all over Israel are coming into Jerusalem, because this is the only place you can celebrate the Passover. You can only celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem, that's the capital city of Israel. That's where the high priest is. It's the only way you can worship God is to go into the temple to a high priest who is from the tribe of Levi, who is from the lineage of Aaron, who is Moses' brother. And there you can have your sins atoned for by offering an animal to the priest. The priest will slay the animal, take the blood, and your sins are atoned for. That's what the Passover, at least that's more the day of atonement, but the Passover is the same Situation: You have to come to Jerusalem and use a Levitical priest to mediate between you and God. And so Israel is supposed to come to, all the people of Israel, I should say, are supposed to come to Jerusalem three times a year. It was spelled out in the law of Moses. Leviticus 23, those three feasts. What are those three feasts? You've got Passover, which is also called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They're synonymous. That's because Passover is celebrated one day and the Feast of Unleavened Bread for the next seven days. Fifty days later, you've got the Feast of Pentecost, also called the Feast of Weeks. And then later in the fall, that happens around uh, uh, March, April, those two feasts. And then in the fall, you've got the Feast of Trumpets, uh, which is added to the Feast of Tabernacles and the Feast of Booths. It's all the same thing and added in, right in there in the midst is the Day of Atonement. And so three times a year, Jews had to come down to Jerusalem to do this. Well, that's what they're doing. So there's uh, upwards of two million Jews, it's believed, that were coming in. To Jerusalem. The city limits had to be expanded to allow for all the Jews coming in. So that's what they're prepping for. So in chapter 21, verse 37, during the day, Luke says, he was teaching in the temple, but in the evening he would go out and spend the night on the mount which is called Olivet, the Mount of Olives, just right outside of Jerusalem. Uh, right over the, the, there is a, right over the little hill. It's not really a mountain at all, it's just a hill. Right over that was Bethany where he would stay. So he'd either, perhaps he's, Luke has it that he's sleeping on the, the Mount of Olives and the other gospels say he's just, just beyond that in Bethany. One way or the other, this is where he retreats each day. And in verse 38, and all the people would get up early in the morning to come to him, note, in the temple to listen to him. So all the people, it's a lot of people. Jesus has spent the previous three and a half years all over Israel or Palestine healing people. Casting out demons. If you're still sick in Israel, 
You're making your way to Jesus who will heal you. He has made no distinction between believers and unbelievers to heal them, to cast out demons, to make the blind see, the, the lame walk, the, the deaf talk, hear and speak. All over Israel, people have been healed. So no wonder they're coming into Jerusalem and now with Jesus having cleaned out the temple and teaching there every day, he's the featured speaker. And they're all getting up early in the morning to listen to him. This presents a major problem for the people who are out to kill Jesus because this is the time when they're going to have their way. In fact, a day later, they murder Jesus on a cross. But there's this huge conspiracy at this point. It says in chapter 22, verse 1, Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is also called, or which is called the Passover, as I said, uh, you celebrate the Passover. The Passover is celebrated without fail on the month of Nisan, Nisan 14. That equates to our, as I said, March, April. Sometimes it falls in March, sometimes it falls in April. But it's Nisan 14. Used to be called the month of Abib, A-B-I-B. The month of Abib, which is Nisan on the 14th. It has to be on the 14th. Can't be on the 15th. Can't be a day late. Can't be a day early. If you were unclean in the Old Testament and you couldn't celebrate it on Nisan 14, God gave the provision to Moses that they could celebrate it a month later. But you had to fall under extenuating circumstances. But note that. Has to be Nisan 14 to celebrate the Passover. And that's the day that is coming. So it's here, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's approaching, which is called the Passover, was approaching. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death. For they were afraid of the people. Remember, all the people are coming to listen to him. All the people love Jesus. They want to kill him, so they know if they grab a a very popular man and take him away and kill him, they're in trouble. They lose their influence, and they could be killed. They could be stoned to death if they kill Jesus. So they're fearful of the people. They've been angry at Jesus. If we were to go back to the early part of Jesus' ministry, Mark chapter 3, verse 6 says that he healed a man on the Sabbath. A man had a shriveled hand. Jesus said, hold your hand out. The man held his shriveled hand out. Jesus made it a full hand, a full arm. Everything was healed. Now, that is a miracle. That's not a Benny Hinn concert where you go in with a sore back, have his coat thrown at you, go away feeling, my back feels pretty good. That would be more psychosomatic than anything or just really psycho. Sorry. Jesus heals. I mean, I always thought, you know, a man that lost a leg in Vietnam, you know, that would be a miracle. The man goes into a Benny Hinn concert and comes out with a new leg and not a fake one. That would be a miracle. That's how Jesus healed. That's true healing. And he's healed other people on the Sabbath. You'd think that his enemies would say, there's something to this guy. But yeah, they may have believed there was something to Jesus, but that's why they wanted to kill him. And so Jesus healed other people on the Sabbath. Everything he did or said either impressed people, and hence they're following him to listen to him, or they're out to kill him. It's interesting, isn't it? It's amazing to me, even now, all the years I read through this, that there were a group of people that were so intent on murdering Jesus over what he had done. Simply preach the truth and heal people who were hurting. So with all the crowds surrounding Jesus, they need someone to help them get Jesus. They don't even know where he is. Imagine a crowd in Jerusalem of two million people. Where are we going to find Jesus? Where will we find this guy? Enter Judas Iscariot who slithers onto the scene. Now I want you to hold your place here and go over to the next gospel over the gospel of John in chapter 12. These are, when we put the four gospels together, you can get a fuller story. And so I want to bring that a little bit of it to light here before we go back to Luke. In John chapter 12, it's the same context. Uh, this John's gospel, the first half brings us to the last week, and the last half of John's gospel is the last week of Jesus' life. Uh, so his, he has the longest account of it. So we know that Jesus comes into town um, on a Monday, that that. What we celebrate as Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, it's known. Jesus comes into town. I've told you that date is March the 30th, A.D. 33. March the 30th, A.D. 33. Now, you may have a, a study Bible, especially if you have the John MacArthur study Bible. It doesn't say that, does it? And you're going, what's going on? John MacArthur or Lance Wally? Well, that's obvious. <laughs> I mean, come on. 
<laughs> now, I would never go up against that, that fine gentleman, but his dating is a little strange to mine, and, uh, and you're going to give the benefit of the doubt to whomever. It's certainly nothing to divide over, but I'm telling you that the year is AD 33, and he will tell you the year is AD 30, and no doubt he wrote a Bible, so we're going with him, right? Um, it's interesting, John MacArthur. I love John MacArthur. He's a hero to me, and he should be a hero to anyone who hears his preaching. The man has spent 50-plus years in ministry without a scandal, constantly going through God's Word and transforming lives. So uh, there's no disrespect to him whatsoever. But I have heard John MacArthur back in the 70s preach through the dating methods, and he gave great credence to the person that I take my dates from, who's a man named Harold Honer. Harold Honer happened to be from Dallas Theological Seminary, the greatest seminary on the planet, at least back then. Maybe now, may not, has other competitors, which are good competitors. But John MacArthur was going through a series on Daniel that I was listening to years ago, and he was talking about that complicated um, mathematical equation I give you from time to time from Daniel chapter 9, the 70 weeks. And MacArthur's going through it, and he said, and Sir Robert Anderson came up with the date that the decree to rebuild Jerusalem was 445 B.C., and he puts it down, it's just fantastic. And then MacArthur in the 1970s said, but yet there's another guy over at Dallas Seminary named Harold Honer who came up in the mid-70s with this other, other research pointed to the date wasn't 445 B.C. that the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem went out, but in 444 B.C., one year difference. Well, that changes a lot of things. And MacArthur seemed really, really hip to that. That was the, that was the better way. And Honer has come out and shown you, okay, the only particular, the only possible times that Jesus could have died on the Passover, when the, when the Passover was there, and the time frame were given would be either in the year A.D. 30 or A.D. 33. So it's, it's a toss-up. And some of it, I believe most of it hinges on when, if we were to go back to Luke chapter 3, which I will not, I probably lost half of you already anyway, but on when the dates of Julius Caesar reigned to Augustus Caesar to Tiberius Caesar. Okay? Quick little nutshell, Augustus Caesar died in the year A.D. 14. Fifteen years after his death brings the date to what? A.D. 29. You add 14 plus 15. Am I right? A.D. 29. John the Baptist, he said that's the year that John the Baptist's ministry was there. If it's A.D. 30 that Jesus died, then his ministry only lasted one year. Well, what MacArthur does is he says, okay, Tiberius didn't begin to reign in AD 14 when Augustus died. He began to reign while Augustus was still living in AD 10. So there's an overlap. Hence the three years that he has different than my three years. Now, wasn't that simple? All of that is just to say that I know many of you have good study Bibles. and I'm giving you a different date. Um, you can't drive to his church uh, in California, because it's too far of a commute. You have to come here. And, and I want you to go with the 33 date, as Harold Honer has proven in his book, The Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ, the 33 date is the most accurate date. Therefore, Jesus came into town on March the 30th, A.D. 33. Are we, we clear on that? It's the only way you're getting to heaven if you put that one down, so you might as well. And so Jesus comes into town on that day. Now that is 30. He's going to die on the 3rd of, of April. So you've got, he's on the 30th, that's March 31st, April 1st, April 2nd, April the 3rd. Five days. Six days before the Passover, John says in John chapter 12, there's an event. John chapter 12 verse 1. Therefore Jesus, six days before the Passover, the Passover is on Friday, Nisan 14. Six days before it makes it Saturday of the previous week. Are you with me? Okay, I want to make sure you are. Six days before, Jesus is in Bethany, and he is at a man's house named Lazarus. Or, I'm sorry, a man's house named um, Lazarus is there, but there is a, uh, um, he's, he's at a, a man's house named Simon the leper. Uh, this is a, looks like a, a man of some, of some uh, means. Jesus looks like he's healed him of his leprosy, but they also live in Bethany. Long story short, Jesus is there on the Saturday before he will die on the Friday, and a woman, we know it's Mary of Bethany, the woman that, that uh, sat at Jesus' feet in Luke chapter 10 while her sister Martha prepared the meal, and Martha said, will you tell Mary to help me? And, Mary, and Jesus said, no, Mary's doing the right thing. She's at my feet. You can do all that later. Mary comes up and takes a very expensive 
um, vial of perfume that cost, it was worth 300 days of salary. That's almost a year's worth of salary. And she pours this perfume over Jesus' head and his feet, filling the room with a fragrance. Now, what would you do if someone did that and you knew it was that expensive? A year's wage. Take, take almost a year's wage of what you have and pour it over someone's head. And do you think that's a good way to spend that money? I mean, we all have to admit that, man, that's a lot of money. Well, it not only astonished the disciples, it made them all angry, but it infuriated Judas Iscariot. Look over here in John 12, verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Why wasn't it sold for the 300 days worth of wage it was worth? He said this, John says, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And he had the money box, and he used to pilfer what was put into it. So we know this event, which is also described in Matthew and Mark's gospel, not Luke, but we know that Judas, it's been under his, Jesus has been under his skin for three and a half years. You see, Jesus to Judas was a disappointment, as Jesus is to many people on this planet. Jesus is a disappointment to people. What we expect from Jesus, he doesn't give us, usually of a selfish nature. He didn't give me what I wanted. This person that I love wasn't healed when I asked him. He must not care. I'm done with Jesus. Or I lost my job and I lost someone I loved. Whatever it might be, I'm done with Jesus. A lower or an expectation of Jesus that the Bible doesn't give us. Judas had some expectation for Jesus, and Jesus has let him down over the course of three and a half years, and this is the final straw. I'm done with Jesus. All the money that we could have collected from this woman's perfume, and you let, him, you let her pour it over your head and feed Jesus? That is such a waste. I want nothing to do with you now. Six days before the Passover, Judas has in his head, I'm done with Jesus. Knowing that people are out there to kill Jesus, now he's going to go to work. And so he does. The scribes and the Pharisees, what we call the chief priests, the religious leaders, they are afraid of Jesus because of the crowds. End of verse 2 of chapter 22, I'm in, back in Luke. They're seeking how they might put him to death, for they were afraid of the people. Verse 3, and Satan entered Judas, who was called Iscariot. So now Judas, angry with Jesus, and having said, I'm done with Jesus... What happens to a person when they're done with Jesus? I mean, I don't know if this happens to everybody, and I don't even know what this looks like when Satan enters a person. I've seen people that I think Satan is in. Um, they're mostly under the age of two. <laughs> I don't know what it looks like, but I know this. He's no longer under the power of God. He's under God's sovereignty, so it's hard to say that with any great degree of accuracy that you're not under God's power. He has allowed himself, better put, to be under the influence of the devil himself. I'm done with Jesus. It doesn't say that he went out and sought Satan, but Satan is seeking him. And when you're done with Jesus, when you're through with Jesus, you're angry at God, Satan is a willing participant in your life, wouldn't you say? Some of you can say yes because you know it firsthand. Um, when we say Satan entered him, if I was going to go back to John's gospel, John chapter 13, just one chapter over from where I was in John, um, it's during the, the supper where Jesus is, is observing this supper the night before he dies. In John 13 too, it says, during the supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus, so we know there, it's already put into Jesus, into his heart, well, that goes back to our time in Luke, where Ju uh, he's already been put into Judas's heart. Look over at John 13, 27. Uh, Jesus even allowed Judas to partake of the Lord's Supper with him that night, of the Passover, we should say. John 13, 27, after the morsel that, John, or that, that Judas ate, Satan then entered him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. You're going to betray me, leave. Judas was so sly about who he was the other 11 disciples had no idea it was him. Up to this point in John's gospel, at least, Jesus has told them, one of you is going to betray me. And they all go around, can it be me? Is it me? No one is looking over and going, yeah, it's going to be Judas. We know he's been stealing from the, from the, 
the money bag. They didn't know that until after the fact. Judas is very sly. He's one of those people that acts like a Christian that comes to church that isn't. And so now, with the devil having put it in his heart, and with the the chief priests looking for an opportunity to betray Judas, and with Judas looking for some money, and finally done with Jesus, Satan entered into Judas in verse 3, who was called Iscariot. That's his surname. He's belonging to the twelve. This is amazing. Because we just read in John's gospel, I just showed you, about a woman who gave everything she had. An entire year's worth of money to her was well spent being poured over the Savior's head and feet. That's worship. Such a perfume would have filled, the fragrance would have filled the entire room. Don't you think? Some of you who are sensitive to that, you're going, I don't think I want to be a part of that. But note that. One woman, this is the same woman who sat at his feet while her sister Martha in Luke chapter 10 was busy. I need to prepare a meal. Got to get all this ready. Jesus, tell my sister to help me out. Jesus, no. What she's chosen is the superior way. Martha, all those things will get done. Come sit at the feet of God and listen to me. Mary has chosen that way. Mary's life has been dedicated to Jesus. In fact, when her brother Lazarus died... She's the one that that met Jesus at his feet in agony, not blaming him. Martha was a little bit more um, blaming toward Jesus, condemning toward Jesus. If you'd have been here, he wouldn't have died. Mary didn't say that. And so we get this contrast between a woman who gave everything seemingly without any hesitation and her worship filled the room to a guy that's been walking with Jesus for over three years who hates Jesus. Don't forget that in Luke chapter 9, God gave the the 12 disciples the power to raise the dead, cast out demons, heal the sick, preach the word. Judas is one of those people. Judas may very well have done all of those miracles through the power God gave him. Now here he is saying, I'm done. Satan has gone into him. He was belonging to the twelve, one of the apostles. Verse 4, and he went away and discussed with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. We know that money was 30 pieces of silver. We learned that from the synoptics from the other gospels. 30 pieces of silver was the, the price of a slave. Price of a slave. That's all Jesus was worth. Price of a slave to Judas. So he consented. Verse 6, began seeking a good opportunity to betray him to them apart from the crowd. You see, this has got to be done away from the, the onlooking eyes of, of, the, of the crowd. We've got to have Judas kind of slip away. It's got to be known that he just, he, he's, where's Judas? We don't know. He's gone. And Judas is going to help him get to that place. People do that. Betrayal is a horrible sin, especially when you're betraying an innocent person as Jesus was. Judas was never a part of, though he, was, he walked with the twelve, he was never a chosen child of God. That's the difference between God's elect children and God's and people that, that say, I believe, sure, give me some fire insurance when I die, I get to go to heaven. The elect are like Mary. Uh, they, they live to please God until the day they die. The rest may deny Jesus all of their lives, or they may follow him for a time. Yeah, we go to church. We go to this church. Yeah, we got a Bible. We give 10% of our money. Yeah, I got baptized. None of that means anything, people. That doesn't mean anything if it's just that in and of itself. Yes, those things mean something when they're attached to true faith. But Judas represents so many who would betray Jesus. Verse 7, then came the first day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John. He doesn't send all the disciples. He doesn't even tell the disciples where they're going. He sends Peter and John and Peter and John alone. Because if he had said, okay, guys, here's where we're going. The, The 12 want to know where we're eating the Passover that night. And Jesus isn't going to tell them because if he's... If he says, here's where we're going, we're going to this place, we're going at Main and First Street, and on this guy's house, whatever it is, Judas is going to skedaddle out, 
Find the chief priest and say, you can meet us tonight at this house. That's where we're having the Lord's Supper. That's where we're celebrating the Passover, I should say. But no, Jesus, knowing the conspiracy behind the scene, Jesus knows he's going to die, doesn't he? He's predicted it three times up to this point. We're going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be killed, and on three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. So none of this is happening by by some sort of uh, um, accident. Our Lord knows the very hour in which he must die and is making his way to do everything he must do until that hour arrives, one of which is to keep Judas in the dark. So he sends Peter and John, saying, in verse 8, Go and prepare the Passover for us so that we may eat it. They said to him, Where do you want us to prepare it? And he said to them, that would be uh, to the two, When you have entered the city, a man will greet you carrying a pitcher of water. Now, you may not recognize this for first time, but men didn't carry water in those days. You think, well, how do you know that? It was, you know, back then you didn't have a, a house with a faucet. You know, go to your house today and just turn it on, turn it off. Turn it on, turn it off. On, off. On, off. That's, that's pretty good privilege, you know. Because before running water, you had to go down to a local well and get water. Imagine that. You don't get to just turn it on, turn it off, turn on the hot water, mix it all together, take a big, nice bath, and then open the drain and let it all go out into oblivion. That water meant something. After you bathed, someone else had to bathe after you. That's where the lost the baby in the bathwater sort of thing came out. After mom and dad's filth and you know, your 2.5 other kids bathe, you know, the little kid gets the rest. That's how you can serve water. And the men would work in the day at their jobs. It was the woman's job to go get water. In fact, we meet a woman at the well in John chapter 4. That was her job, to come to the well this many times a day. So to find a man in the city with a pitcher of water would be unusual. It would be like finding a man with a purse. That's what I used to say. But nowadays... (laughs) It's becoming more normal, I guess. When you have entered the city, Pete tells Peter and John, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. That's going to stand out there. Follow him into the house that he enters. And you shall say to the owner of the house, the teacher says to you, of course, that's a reference to Jesus, Peter and John, they're going to follow this guy, this guy carrying water. Two guys are following me. You know, where are, we, where are they going? Um, and they go into this house. Clearly, Jesus has made these arrangements. You remember just a couple of days prior, Jesus told two disciples, they're unnamed, probably Peter and John, go into that town over there, right over down the hill, and uh, grab me a, a, a donkey. And uh, if anyone asks, tell them the Lord has need of it. And they did. And somebody did ask. And they did say that. And the guy said, yes, yeah, sure, okay. If it's for the Lord, okay. So the two disciples, whoever they were in that context, were probably dumbfounded at how great Jesus was once again. And now, once again, they're going into a house they knew nothing about. Jesus has made these plans. Follow him into the house. The teacher says, if he asks, where's the guest room? Which I me eat the Passover with my disciples. Verse 12. And he will show you a large furnished upper room. Prepare it there. And they left and found everything just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Okay. Now, this is one of the, the interesting things about the Passover. Um, if you would... Hold your place in Luke and move over to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. Each of these are going to be in the same context. Just so you know, Thursday to us would be April the 2nd, A.D. 33. Mark chapter 14, verse 12. Just one gospel to the left of Luke. Mark writes this, Mark 14, verse 12. On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare you to eat the Passover? Which meal is Jesus going to observe that day? The Passover. Now, the reason I make this point is because it's Thursday night. It's Thursday night. Are you with me? Now flip over to John. One gospel to the right of Luke. We've been there twice already. John chapter 18, verse 28. When you get to John 18, it's not Thursday. It's Friday. 
It's early Friday morning. What meal did Jesus eat on Thursday night? The Passover meal. What day can the Passover be eaten on and only that day? Nisan 14. When you get to John's gospel, Jesus has already been arrested. He spent a whole night, and it's early the next day, John 18, 28. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium. That's his palace. And it was early. And they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled but might eat the Passover. Interesting because Jesus ate the Passover the night before. What are the Jews worried about on Friday about being defiled to eat the Passover when the Passover occurred the night before? Well, I'm glad you asked. You're not going to be. This commentary will not be out for you until Friday, unfortunately. But uh, when you read it, you're going to go, what? Huh? What? Let's go do something else after you read it. This is important. It's important because we know on Thursday night Jesus ate the Passover. Now, here's the big problem. How can you have a Passover on Friday, on Thursday, and another one on Friday? Easy. Nisan 14. Nisan 14 is the only day Passover can be had. You and I, this morning, uh, Sunday became Sunday at what time? Midnight. From midnight until 11.59 with 59 seconds is Sunday for us. But not to the Jews. Some Jews, like Jesus, who were from the north in Galilee, remember he was from Nazareth in Galilee, that's where he was raised, he's a a Galilean Jew in the north, in the south there's Judean Jews. The Galilean Jews reckoned a day from sunrise to sunrise. It's 24 hours, no one was looking at a watch back then, there were no watches. You looked at when the sun came up and when the sun went down, that's a day. In the north, you can remember that Jesus was a sunrise to sunrise guy because uh, people that are early in the morning are, are your, maybe, I don't know, maybe your sharpest people, right? Yeah, okay. All the rest are, are slackers. Jesus was an early riser. You want to put it that way? He was, you know, productive people get up early. How about that? They're not smarter. They're just productive. So that's how you can remember that. Judean Jews, however, reckoned a day from sunset to sunset. Now you're going, wait a minute. So Jesus' Thursday was, I mean, we would say that our Sunday began at, at, at 12.01, at midnight, actually, our Sunday. But I got up at 5.30 this morning, and so my Sunday began at 5.30, but it was already five and a half hours old, right? To a Jew, Sunday would have, although it would have begun for us at midnight, it wouldn't have begun until you went outside and you saw the sun peek over there. So it was still been Saturday until the sun appeared early on Sunday morning. Does that help? Okay. The Judean Jews and the Galilean Jews had two ways of reckoning the Passover, two ways of reckoning time. Uh, and so where we might say Thursday and Friday, they're not so much into the day, but the date. Not the day, but the date. It's not so much a Thursday or Friday. It's got to be Nisan 14. All right, you're going, why did I come to church today? Why is this important? It's important. I promise you, it's of utmost importance. Because if Jesus is celebrating that meal early, and if he dies on a day that's not Nisan 14, he's not the Christ. Can't be. Jesus was selected as the Passover lambs were always selected on Nisan 10, according to Exodus chapter 12, verse 3. On Exodus 10, that's Monday. Jesus came into town. That means something. The selection of the Lamb of God. On Monday, Nisan 10. And he will die Friday, Nisan 14. That fits with what Exodus says about the Passover. Jesus is our Passover lamb, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. That almost slipped my mind. So, Thursday, what we would call Thursday here in Jesus' context, begins for Jesus, that Nisan 14, at sunrise on that Thursday. At sunrise on that Thursday was Nisan 14 to Jesus. Nisan 14 for Jesus will last until sunrise on Friday morning. For the Judean Jews, I've got my outer limits here. For the Judean Jews, theirs begins at sunset. Nisan 14 is there. And Nisan 14 will begin until Friday, will endure until Friday at the end of that day. I'm not even going to ask if you're with me anymore. 
In other words, when Jesus celebrated the Passover on Thursday, it had been Passover, it had been Nisan 14 since sunrise that day. By sunset, it's still Nisan 14. He's able to celebrate the Passover. It looks like there were two slayings, two opportunities for the slayings of the lamb. With over two million people, you're going to need that anyway. So the Galilean Jews appear to be celebrating the Passover on Thursday evening, which to them was Nisan 14. It had been Nisan 14 since about 6 a.m. that morning. And Jesus is able to eat the Passover meal. The Judean Jews, whom we read about in John's gospel, are not going to celebrate the Passover until the next day, but it's still Nisan 14 for them. That's why they didn't want to go and follow Pilate into his palace because they would be going into a Gentile palace on the Passover. And if they're unclean, they can't partake of the Passover. Now, if you're a grammarian and you're not engineer or math-minded, you are completely lost. And if you're an engineer, you're going, yeah, yeah, this all makes perfect sense. Uh, one way or the other, it's, it can be complicated. The point I want to make to you, and the main point, is that Jesus' meal on that Passover, the last meal that he ate with his disciples, was the Passover celebration. It was to be followed by seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Why unleavened bread? Because bread with leaven in it, or yeast, is a metaphor in the Old Testament for sin, and how little bit of sin can permeate the entire batch of dough. A little bit of leaven, just like sin, can permeate and, and grow so large. And so they, they, list, they, they celebrate unleavened bread for the next seven days to celebrate the leaving of sin behind, the leaving of their slavery when they were in Egypt. That's what the Passover celebrates. The exodus from Egypt, the Passover lamb, this is our celebration, and so they remember their exodus of freedom from slavery. So Jesus is celebrating that meal. Are you okay? I never know. It's easy to stand up and flap at the gums. Sometimes I go, where are you going with this? And I'm the one teaching it. But I want you to know that. That's important because people will say, there's all kinds of garbage out there saying, well, that meal that Jesus ate on that Thursday night wasn't the Passover. Mark says it was. The Gospels say that it was the Passover, and there will be another Passover the next day. By the way, when the Passover comes the next day, and they're still in Nisan 14, What's happening around 3 to 5 o'clock as the sun goes down on Nisan 14? The Passover lambs are being sacrificed by the priests in the temple, and blood is pouring out everywhere. What was happening on the cross at Calvary? The Passover lamb was being slain. The Passover lamb was selected on Monday. The Passover lamb was slain on Nisan 14 Friday. The Passover lamb is our first fruits of those from the grave, which is what you celebrate three days into the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Passover lamb is named Jesus of Nazareth. All the math points towards it from Daniel chapter 9 onward. All the dates, all of the, the, the typology of Jesus coming in on Monday, dying on Friday. The dating methods, everything points to Jesus being the Christ. There is no competitor as to who might be the Christ. There's no second place that goes, well, we favor this guy over here. There's just none of them that fulfill all the prophecies. Hundreds and hundreds of prophecies fulfilled by Jesus, and there's hundreds more, another 300 more to be fulfilled at his second coming. Let me just say it very evident. Jesus is the Christ. He is our Messiah. He is the only one who can wash our sins away and declare us not guilty, even though we're guilty. And the good news is he has done that. If you will trust in him by faith, he just takes his hand like a wand and says, declared righteous. That's it? Yes. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's the whole point of studying Jesus of Nazareth, also called the Christ. And so they go and they find everything just as Jesus said, and they prepared the Passover at the end of verse 13. In verse 14, when the hour had come, Jesus, as he, reclined at the table, 
and the apostles with him. Here the twelve, the disciples are called apostles, the sent ones. That's what the word apostle means, the sent ones. Judas is still with them, by the way, possessed by Satan and everything. In fact, Jesus in John's gospel will wash his feet. He still serves him, still loves Judas Iscariot, at least in action. When the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And that was his last meal. And we await, see, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, that verse right there is what we're thinking about. We're eating a meal in between Jesus' last supper and the upcoming supper when he returns, because it's a great feast, and the little meal we have is anticipating that future return, that meal. It's anticipating it. A little taste, a little appetizer, if you will, for what's coming. And that's what Jesus says here. He says, I will not, I will never again eat it, eat the fruit, eat this meal, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Well, Jesus is the king. There is no kingdom without a king. When the king comes, that's when the kingdom is here. And that's what we're looking to the second coming. Verse 17, and when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. Well, this would be a cup filled with wine and passed along to at least 12 other men. A common cup. We don't practice that today because it's disgusting. But the first cup here in verse 17 uh, would be the cup that you open the meal with. And it's a, it's a cup of thanks. In fact, Giles gave you the, the announcement for it. But on March the 5th, we've got a gentleman coming in from Chosen People Ministries who's going to lead a Seder. It's called a Seder. It's the Jewish Passover. And he's going to tell you about the symbolism and what it means, what the Jews did, and what it means to our, our, the coming of Christ. This is a Jew who's come to know his Messiah. Uh, it's going to be a great time. Uh, Tuesday night, uh, March the 5th, from 6.30 to 8. And he'll go through these cups. So just right now, the first cup was just given. You hold it up, and, and it's thanks. Lord, you have delivered us. You are a great God for your deliverance. And it was a cup of thanks. And when he had taken a cup and gave thanks, he said, this is Jesus speaking, take this and share it among yourselves. We're all going to give thanks together. Verse 18. The second cup is never mentioned. The next cup mentioned in verse 20 is the third cup, but let's, let's get there first. Verse 18, Jesus says, For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine. That's wine. I will not drink this meal from now on until the kingdom of God comes. Same thing he said in verse 16. We give thanks to what God has done for his salvation. And guys, I'm not going to drink this cup again until I come again in my kingdom. Verse 19, and when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Well, it's obviously not Jesus' body, is it? It's a piece of bread. And Jesus' body is separate from the bread. Take the bread. So any notion that that bread is actually Jesus' body or somehow becomes Jesus' body in, the, in our bodies is never in the Bible. It's a ridiculous notion. Jesus says, take this bread, he breaks it, it's unleavened bread, it's without sin, as it were, partake it and do it in remembrance of me, the broken body of Jesus. Elsewhere, Jesus has said, I am the bread of life. He says it very plainly in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. He tells the, the Jews that day, who were very angry with him, they didn't like his sermon in John chapter 6, he says, as Moses sent bread from heaven, those people died even though they ate the bread of heaven. But he tells people, if you eat my bread, in other words, if you partake of me, you will never die. So this is the significance, the, the symbolism of, of the, the bread Jesus gives. So he takes bread. He's already given thanks. With the, they've thanked God for his deliverance. They're breaking bread now, remembering the, uh, the exodus from Egypt. Jesus likens it to his body. Verse 19, and when they had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 20, and in the same way, he took the cup. This is another cup. We saw a cup there in verse 17. This is the third cup of the meal. Second cup isn't mentioned. But in the second cup, there was an explanation given of what the Passover was. And we'll get that, no doubt, in our Seder presentation. But this is the cup that Luke gives us in the same way he took the cup. So he would have held up the cup, and he said, after they had eaten, saying, this cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. 
Now, I know it's 10 minutes until we need to release. And this is about the time people are getting a little bit fidgety. It's time to go home. But give me the last couple of minutes. Whatever roast is in the oven will not be overcooked. I'm not even going to go over time. But stay with me. This is important. The new covenant in Jesus' blood is different from the old covenant in the blood of lambs, bulls, and goats. The Mosaic Covenant. You see, the Mosaic Covenant was the law given to Israel that said, if you will do what I say, I will bless you. Part of doing what God said would be to sin and offer a blood sacrifice for the atonement of those sins. But what people realize is that they keep sinning. Have you noticed that about yourself? In spite of the fact that we've been saved, we keep sinning. Even if we don't do something wicked, we think wicked things. We know it. We might be able to, to, to fool other people and might not let our anger out, but inside we're seething. Or we might be able to say, hi, how are you? Inside we're going, I hate your guts. <laughs> we're good at that, aren't we? And that's sin. That's, that nature is, oh yeah, that's a pretty woman. Inside you're lusting. That's saying, oh, I'm really glad that those people have all that money. Over here you're coveting. You're, I wish I had their money. It may not come out. We may not do anything with our hands or feet, but we are still sinners. And that's why it's so wonderful to be reminded of that and then be reminded of the continual feast, continual priestly sacrifice that our Lord gives us to continually wash those sins away. Amen. Amen. So this new covenant in the blood of, of Christ is what they learned from the old covenant is we keep sinning. We have to keep bringing animal sacrifices. We have to keep doing it. Our hearts are not changed. God is not satisfied by the blood of bulls and goats. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 2 tells us. They atone for sins. They put it off. God covers those sins, but those sins still exist. The new covenant was predicted in Jeremiah chapter 31 verses 31 to 34. God tells Israel, I will give you a new covenant. I will make your hearts, which are stone, which are like stone and have the, the law etched in them. Stone heart. You know, it's, it's a metaphorical speech. If your heart is made of stone, are you a very loving person? No. If you have a soft heart, we're loving people. God is saying, I'm going to take that heart of stone that has all the little rules I gave you that you won't keep, and I'm going to transform you. I'm going to make your heart like flesh, and you're going to love me. There are people today that say, you can't tell me that God forces love. Oh, yes, he does. You and I would never love God unless he loved us first. We cannot love God. We hate God. We hate God. Now, you might not be red-faced if you're an unbeliever going, I loathe God. But you hate God by your actions because you do what you want to do. You don't do what God loves. I hate God. Oh, God has to foist himself on us and make us love him for us to love him. Is that imperfect love? You bet it is. We're imperfect people. This is to the glory of God. Don't ever let anybody say, oh, no, God wants my love. He needs my perfect love. If God needs my perfect love, he's a pathetic God because my love stinks. I have a hard time loving people that are lovable, my own children, my wife. I'll tell you somebody I really love, though. Right here. I really love me. I must because I do whatever I want, and I will run over people to do what I want. Are you the same way? You better believe it. We are a wretched people, aren't we? That's the old covenant. The new covenant is God transforming us. If you and I are in Christ, we are in the new covenant. Jesus inaugurated it on the night before his death. God transformed us and he did it. He ratified it with his blood. Covenants have to be ratified with blood. God ratified it with his blood, not ours, his and on that night, on that Thursday night, on that Nissan 14 night, Jesus finished the, the, the supper, holding up the cup, this cup, which is poured out for you. That's the death of Jesus. That's vivid speech for Jesus' death being poured out on us. It's for you. The new covenant in Christ's blood. You believe in that God, which is the only God, that God has signed and sealed you in your name in his blood. You think you can lose that? What gets out blood? Nothing gets out blood. 
That stain is in God's mind. It's in his soul. Your name. Having believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, he has written our names, as it were, in blood. The new covenant. Is that good news? Because the old covenant, we're not doing too well at. Do good and do enough good. Oh, yeah, well, I do lots of good things. People say that all the time. I do good things. I'm not bad like other people. That might be true, but you ain't good enough. No one's good enough. And if you're honest with yourself, you'll admit that. I might be a good person, but I'm not good enough. And if I am good enough, then why did Jesus have to die? Were you accepted? Well, he died, but he didn't need to die for me. I got this, Lord. No, you don't. What a horrible sin to say that. What a horrible, arrogant sin to say, I'm good enough for God to accept me. You are not. What does Isaiah say about our good deeds? Even our good deeds are like filthy rags. Filthy rags. That's what my good deeds are like. They're not good enough. They might be pleasant to us. Pleasant to us when we do those good deeds to each other. Did you see what I did, Lord? We look up to this guy like, like we know where he is or something. Like some Yahoo hits a home run, they look up. Oh, God's going, bravo. You hit the ball 400 feet. That's just fantastic. I'm as excited as anybody when the home run's hit by the home team, but that's no big deal. It's us that should be looking, bravo, God, for who you are and what you did. You forgave my sins. You died in my place. You paid the penalty for my sins. Why? Forget the why. Just accept the what. What happened? You're a sinner. You're a mighty sinner. And God became flesh to live and do what you and I cannot do. That is be perfect. And then die our death so that we could have eternal life. Who gets it? Everyone? No. Only those who receive him by faith. If you were amongst the crowd today and you have not received Jesus by faith, you have not believed in him, maybe you believe something about him, but you don't believe that he's God, he lived your life and died your death, and that by believing in him you have eternal life, then do so today. What are you waiting for? There's no guarantee of tomorrow. There's no guarantee of the next 30 seconds. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. We study about this guy every week and I can't wait to get here to do it again especially in this Passion Week. Let's pray. Lord, in this Passion Week in your word, you, you just tell us over and over who you are, what you've done, how you did it, why you did it. Oh, I don't know if we could get that. You love, you were a God of love. You are a God of mercy and grace. You are also a God of great wrath. Wrath that you took out upon your son at the cross so that you wouldn't have to take it upon believers. I pray for those who are unbelievers today that they might leave here as believers, those who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. If there be any of them today, Lord, I pray you'd send them down after the service and have them talk to us. May we be here to lead them, to pray with them. Revive the rest of us. May we go out into this dark world and, and shine a great light, the light of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen. May God bless you, my friends. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy. Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas.